Cannabis Deals With Me podcast, episode 98. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. This is your host, Rachel Kennerly, coming to you once again from the Storybook and Studios. And unfortunately, the studios are not quite as magical as they used to be, or not quite as peaceful as they used to be, at the least. There is construction going on across the street from us, as well as next door to us. So you may hear some pounding, some chainsaws running, some nail guns. There's no telling what you're going to hear in the background, but I wanted to give you a heads up on that. But the show must go on, and I can't wait until they finish doing whatever it is they're doing over there, cutting down beautiful live oak trees and all that good stuff, I've got to get the show done. And so here we are rolling and you guys will just have to try and ignore any pounding or thumping in the background. Thanks again for tuning in on this Thursday educational episode. We are going to get to that in just a minute, but a little housekeeping before we do. If you haven't done so already, go out and subscribe to the podcast. Pick up your favorite app, Go out to the subscribe button, and what's going to happen when you subscribe is that every time a new episode comes out, it will automatically download to your podcast app. You don't have to worry. Well, are they having a Thursday episode this week or not? Because we don't have Thursday episodes every week. But you know what? If you are actually subscribed to the podcast, it's going to download to your podcast app. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So of the 99 problems that you may have, wondering whether or not the Cannabis Sells Me podcast has downloaded to your podcast app is one thing you're not going to have to worry about. Isn't that nice to know? Also, while you're out there subscribing, go ahead and give us a rating or review. And I know the download numbers. I know the number of reviews that we've had. And there are a lot of y'all. A lot of y'all, I'm not going to name any names because I'm just too nice for that. A lady never tells. A lot of y'all have not given us a rating or review. And we're missing out because you haven't done your part. Here I am slaving away, providing you a quality podcast with quality infotaining guests. And you can't even go out and give us a rating or review. It takes like, I don't know, 30 seconds. Okay, the review, now that may take a little longer. If you want to be verbose or wax poetic about how much this podcast has been to you, that could take a little longer than 30 seconds. But giving us a rating or review, it's like three clicks of a button. Simple, easy does it. So if you're tired of hearing me ask you to give us a rating or review, go out there and give us one so you can shut me up, if for nothing else, than to shut me up at the first of every show so that you don't have to fast forward through this part of the show quite as far. And with that, I will quit harassing you, at least for right now, and move on into introducing our guest. Our guest is Professor C.J. Kilmer. He is the host of the Dangerous History Podcast, which if you're a history buff like me, my dad's a, a history major, so we always grew up with a great appreciation for history. So if you appreciate history, and if you appreciate deep dives into history, you're going to love CJ's show. He takes a lot of topics and he just dissects them till you can't think that they're dissectable anymore. He takes every little microfiber off the bone of the frog of history and tells you more about it than you ever knew existed. He does in-depth research before every episode and he puts out episodes that are like 
two and three hours long. It's not boring. It's not dry. He's very entertaining. So y'all go check out the Dangerous History podcast with my guest, CJ Kilmer. Good morning, CJ. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I love your podcast. I I really enjoyed your Civil War series. I, I thought that was super enlightening. I'm, I'm sure you're sick of the Civil War at this point, but I loved it. I've been listening to the podcast for a while, and then I, I saw that you'd done this episode on Anslinger and thought, man, I need to get him to come on and talk to me about that. And Because we've talked about kind of the history of the drug war on my podcast, but not really taking a deep dive on Anslinger. I was surprised you were able to squeeze it all into an hour because you usually take those deep dives. Yeah, yeah, that that was tough, actually compressing it that much there was obviously a, a lot I could have thrown in there that I had to I had to really kind of pick and choose you know what what stories and quotes and whatever to throw in there because um, like right now I'm doing the Woodrow Wilson series and uh, it, it's shaping up to be about as long as the Civil War oh wow honestly. it's it's crazy I'm on I'm on episode Three, I, th- I think I've well, I've done three. I think I'm working on four, and I've just gotten to the point where he's getting ready to leave academia and enter politics. So, oh wow, I'm gonna do an episode still on like the content of his academic work, um, like you know what he what he actually had in his books and articles and things when he was a professor and all that, um, and then and then you know an episode on his two years as governor of New Jersey. And then probably a separate standalone episode on the 1912 election where he became president. And then no idea how many episodes his presidency will take up because there's so much to go through. I mean, there's there's so much um, mostly terrible stuff, you know, domestic stuff in his first term. And then there's like a billion things you could get into related to World War One. Um, and then I also want to do at least one, maybe multiple episodes on all the stuff Wilson uh, did in Latin America because he was a big, a big interventionist there too. Even before World War One, he's invading Mexico and, you know, I, I think he invaded Haiti and a number of other, you know, it's big on that stuff too. So anyway, yeah, the Woodrow Wilson series. You know, I I, I couldn't have done as much with Anslinger as I as I am with Wilson, but I probably, I probably could have done at least like maybe four episodes on Anslinger if I really wanted to. Oh but wow! I I think so. Anyway, I mean, you know, they 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 none of them would be super long. Maybe like four around one hour or something like that. Um, but definitely, when I started digging into Anslinger, as often happens, I was like, well, it's actually a lot worse than I thought. <laughs> you know. Um, most people just sort of have an idea like, yeah, he's sort of a sort of a racist jerk who started the drug war. It's like, yeah, there's that. Um, but there's there's so much more, you know, layers to it. Yeah, because in Chasing the Scream, you get a pretty good scratching the surface of the kind of person that he was. But then some of the stuff that you talked about, I'm like, wow, you're right. He is way worse than I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once you, you find out that he's got these longstanding deep ties to the intelligence world and that he was, you know, connected to intelligence even before he got on at the, at the narcotics bureau. Um, and then there's, you know, these, he's like literally two degrees of separation from MK ultra, Mm -hmm. um, through that, that guy, George White, who 
I might do something on him if I can dig up enough material on George White just because it's so crazy. I mean, I still think someone could make a really good movie or, or like yeah. a Netflix miniseries or something like that. And, oh, and it absolutely. Would be, it'd be one of those things that people would see it and they'd be like, this can't be real. You know, this this is crazy. Yeah, they, they could definitely do something on him because like you said, he's kind of a bigger than life character. It'd be pretty easy to do one on him and, and you could make up stuff and it would probably come pretty close to the truth. <laughs> it's all about, you know, it's all about getting the budget increased and, and steering us back to Anslinger. He was really adept at that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He he was very effective. I mean, he wasn't quite as successful as J. Edgar Hoover, but he started he started from a humbler starting point in a way. He started with this thing that was almost nothing. Yeah, he started at zero pretty much. Yeah, he he was in at the ground floor, like right as right as alcohol prohibition was finishing up. Then the government, there had been some earlier stuff some of it going back to like Teddy Roosevelt's day as far as like things against opium and whatever, but that was starting to amp up. And then of course, Anslinger seizes upon marijuana as another thing to use in addition to, to opium, uh, as a, as a boogeyman, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's always hard to, to figure out like how much did Anslinger really believe all of his his uh, anti-marijuana hysteria and how mm-hmm. much does he is it just a cynical ploy and to me it's the answer often in those situations is both right like if you're if you're looking at i don't know someone who's either either the head of like a big defense company or or high up in the pentagon working for the government do they really believe all their their boogeyman stories about terrorists and the russians and you know whoever it is or do they kind of know that that stuff's BS and they're just sort of, you know, saying what they have to do? And I think, I think there's, there's, there's a mixture in each individual person in that situation. You know, I think some of them are probably more, more cynical and really like, yeah, we, we know, you know, the terrorists are mostly a joke, but hey, we got to get our budget, you know, where we want it and whatever. And then I think there's some of, so there's some people that are the true believers and there's some where, you know, maybe at different points in their career, they fall into different categories. And I think Anslinger kind of was a mixture of both. And maybe that's what made him so effective and and dangerous was that he, I think he really did believe a lot of his own hype, but he wasn't like an unpragmatic uh, zealot. He was a zealot who actually could be very practical, very, you know, willing to make compromises when he thought it would help him out, you know, there's uh, one of the the stories that I mentioned in that presentation on Anslinger was there was a high level member of Congress that Anslinger mentioned um, in, I think, one of his books or something where he said, oh, yeah, there was this very well-known high up member of Congress who had an opium problem. And basically, for the good of the country, I decided that it would be bad if this guy got busted and this got exposed. And so I made a deal where if he would stay away from shady uh, black market opium dealers and whatever, I'd make sure that my personal pharmacist from the Narcotics Bureau supplies him with good, trustworthy opium. You know, researchers who, who've dug into the primary sources on this basically say, yeah, most likely he was talking about Senator Joe McCarthy. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that, you know, I, th- I thought was pretty, pretty convincing. And so, you know, here's Anslinger, this, this anti-drug crusader who's like, well, 
you know, when it's a high up politician in the government and I'm worried because the thing about Anslinger was he wasn't just a drug warrior. He was also a, a big time cold warrior. Yes. And so he was he was always kind of thinking about the Cold War from the late 40s onward, in addition to the drug war. And he was he was willing to compromise the drug war for the Cold War when it was convenient or strategically beneficial. So, you know, oh, yeah, we'll we'll actually enable a senator to continue his his opium habit for the good of, you know, national security and people's faith in the government and whatever. Uh, And one of the things I, I couldn't quite figure out in my research was Anslinger was constantly in in the um, the fifties trying to blame all of the opium problems, you know, most of which could be traced back to Asia. He was constantly trying to blame it all on the communist Chinese, and it's basically the opposite of the truth. The communist Chinese were like puritanical drug warriors, and it was actually America's allies, the nationalist Chinese. Uh, and then other right-wing groups in other countries in Asia that were the ones more involved in in the opium trade, um, and and I couldn't quite figure out what to think as far as did Anslinger know th- know the truth and know that it was completely BS that the the communist Chinese were behind all the opium in the fifties, uh, but but he just wanted to shoehorn his his Cold War narrative into things or shoehorn you know. M- fabricate the facts to make them fit his cold war narrative or or did he did he actually believe it did he actually have like such confirmation bias from his his ideology that like even though it should have been obvious to him what the truth was uh that he he just simply was blind to it it's it's always hard to figure those things out and you know unless you can you can psychoanalyze someone in real time i guess you can you can never know for sure because even if you go by like what they actually said and wrote in their own uh, documents and things, you always have to wonder like, yeah, but is that really what they thought? You know, because people lie in letters, people lie in speeches, people lie sometimes even in their own diaries and things. So it's always tricky. And before he was blaming the communist Chinese, wasn't he blaming Japan for the opium problem? Yep. Yep. Back in, in the late 30s, early 40s, when, you know, World War II was the thing and the Cold War wasn't really going yet. Yeah, he was blaming it all in Japan. And then seemingly instantaneously, once once Japan was defeated and then, you know, made into an American satellite and then the Chinese communists won the Chinese Civil War in 1949 and became, you know, the new kind of like secondary boogeyman after the Soviets. Then he just like seamlessly switched gears like, oh, wait, now it's all the, the Chinese as if like in, you know, a matter of just a couple of years almost the entire global opium trade just seamlessly changed hands, you know, from one nation to another. And I don't, I don't know of any evidence that the, the Japanese were the kingpins in the opium trade before and during world war two either. I think there was a lot more, um, in terms of European involvement, right? Because you had the British in Hong Kong at the time, uh, you had the French in Indochina, you know, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam back then, and they were involved in various ways, like especially some of their um, – some of it was above board and then some of it was clandestine. But, you know, they were involved in the opium trade and all that for a long time. Uh, and this is all stuff, you know, any anybody who wants to look it up, look up the politics of heroin by Alfred McCoy – who 
Um, very interesting guy. I've had him on my podcast. I might have him on again in the future to talk more about some of this stuff. But he's a very serious, reputable historian at University of Wisconsin, one of the best history programs in the country. Not a conspiracy theorist, you know, weirdo or anything like that. He's He's got all kinds of establishment credentials. But one of the things he's looked into is something that most establishment credentialed historians don't look into, which is the the history of this clandestine netherworld, as he calls it, where it's the world where where organized crime and intelligence agencies sort of overlap in the shadows and oftentimes work with each other in interesting ways. And so, you know, he's he's done the work on like the history of the international narcotics trade and figuring out what the, what the truth of it is and who's really behind it. And so anyway, and anyone who wants to, the politics of heroin, it's a giant book, mm-hmm. but, but for anyone who's unfamiliar with that story, if you sort of take his work on the opium stuff coming out of Asia, and then you take the work of people like Gary Webb on the cocaine stuff uh, coming out of Latin America, particularly like in the eighties and nineties, and you you sort of combine those two things together, you start to get this this um, this picture of this weird relationship that that uh, the CIA and some other agencies have with the the black market and narcotics and all that, where you realize like this it's not what people think it is. There's a there's another level to it, you know. When you're looking at it from the perspective of of the official version of things, right? Where, you know, oh, the the government's just all united in the war on drugs. It's like, that's, there are parts of the government that are fighting the war on drugs. And then there are parts of the government that are fighting on the other side at the same time. And they don't all know what each other are doing. And sometimes they come into conflict. Um, You know, it's, it's not a monolith, right? The, the FBI, the DEA, the CIA, like none of them like each other. And they'll often work at cross purposes, whether they know it or not. Um, and then, and then you add the further dimension of of organized crime and how you know you might have moments in time. Uh, and and again, linking it back to Anslinger, Anslinger was one of the first high up Americans to really call out the mafia and try to go after them in a serious way. Um, I think he was he was the very first, you know, head of of any federal law enforcement related thing to to really talk about the mafia and he was wanting to go after the mafia way back uh, before during and right after world war ii during a time period where j edgar hoover was actually insisting the opposite all the time j edgar hoover was saying oh no there really isn't any such thing as this you know giant yeah there's little criminal gangs but there's there's no overarching organization of crime nationwide or whatever and um and of course, there's no way that J. Edgar Hoover didn't know about who the mafia were. We exactly we know, we know that he knew. I mean, this is this is the guy who knew everything, right? This is the guy who's bugging everybody and and reading everybody's mail and tapping everybody's phone and whatever. Um, you know, we know he knew the mafia was a thing. We know he knew who who the heads of it were, but he had sort of a gentleman's agreement with them at the time. So Anslinger at the Narcotics Bureau is trying to go after the mafia, same time that uh, J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI is like trying to give them a turn a blind eye to them deliberately. And then eventually, you know, the CIA comes along and they're they're very amenable to working with the mafia, particularly in the 50s and 60s. And and so it's it's it becomes very, very complicated, this this very kind of shadowy world 
of, you know, different agencies and then different criminal figures and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's oftentimes hard to figure out like who's, who's, who's really doing what for what reasons, but that's part of the fun. That's part of yeah. the fun of, of doing the research on these things and, you know, watching some of the, the movies and shows that have been made about these sorts of questions is, um, so it makes it inter- interesting, this, this type of history. Yeah. And it, it also kind of, it's like a chicken, which came first, the chicken or the egg thing. Was the U.S. government behind it all or is the U.S. government trying to, well, obviously they're not trying to prevent it because they seem complicit in a lot of things. Did they make these organizations worse by giving them more power and more money? Yeah. And, you know, there's compartmentalization. One one agency doesn't know what another agency knows. And even within within the same agency, there'll be different uh, groups and departments and things, you know, um, when you look at some of the, the shadier things or darker things that say the FBI has done or the CIA has done, usually what I've found is that it's only a small little group who are plugged into like the really, the really horrific things that are being done. Um, you know, I mean, most FBI agents, they're, they're doing, kind of the mundane stuff that we would think that they're doing, you know, they're going after, I don't know, people doing interstate financial fraud and Mm -hmm. they're, they're going after a bank robber or whatever like that, you know, things that most people think of that most people don't really object to them doing, but that there's like a particular unit maybe up to something really, really shady, you know, like, like the guys who were doing COINTELPRO in the fifties and sixties, it's a, it's a fairly small group within the group and the rest of the bulk of the FBI didn't even really know what was going on there. And the same thing with the CIA, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people at the CIA who are, who are doing the mundane things that, you know, who are looking at satellite photos of another country's military base, trying to figure out what they're up to or whatever, things like that. But then you know, there's particular individuals and particular units and groups and whatever who are who are doing the the really shady stuff. And when you understand compartmentalization and how it works, I mean, people compartmentalize even within within themselves as an individual, right? I mean, that's that's how we're able to to do things that contradict our own deeply held beliefs and yet still get up in the morning and function. And when you realize how much even just one individual can compartmentalize within themselves, and then you look at the way it happens with large organizations and institutions, then then you realize, you know, when people are like, oh, how could, I don't know, uh, the CIA be in on killing JFK and, and no one would have talked by now? It's like, well, because it's not like every employee of the CIA in 1963 knew about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking like if it actually was some CIA guys involved, like, Maybe a dozen guys actually knew anything and fewer than that knew the whole picture. And, you know, some of them would have known only their little piece of it, their little view through a soda straw. Um, You know, that they if there's some particular task they were told to do, they would know that they might know, oh, this this looks kind of fishy. Um, huh, I wonder if someone I know had something to do with killing Kennedy. But but they they wouldn't necessarily know the whole picture. And, and only a small, very small group would know the whole picture. And these sorts of people actually uh, are pretty good at keeping secrets. You know, the, the Alan Dulles types, potentially the, the, the Harry Anslinger types, you know, when you look at some of the intelligence things he was connected to. One of the things that surprised me in listening to your discussion on Anslinger is that he was able to maintain his position through, what, three or four presidencies? 
Yeah, let's see. He came in under uh, Herbert Hoover in the early 30s. So it'd be Herbert Hoover, and then he stuck around through all of FDR, and then Harry Truman, and then Dwight Eisenhower, and then uh, he stayed on into the early part of Kennedy. So that's five five presidents total, um, Republican and Democrat. Anslinger himself was a Republican, so that's why he was appointed under under Hoover. Uh, but he was one of these guys who, you know, when when most high up people in the government were being replaced with a change of party after an election. He was one of those guys who hung around. Um, and only J. Edgar Hoover beats him as far as just, you know, just longevity under, you know, presidents coming and going and he's still there. So he was good at playing the game with Congress to get the laws he wanted and to get the funding he wanted. I mean, not always. There were times when he had to deal with um, budget cuts and whatever, but he was in, in, in the overall picture, he was pretty successful in gradually growing his, his agency. He was very good at dealing with the media. He was very good at dealing with presidents and he was also good at dealing with the corporate interests that were on board for what he was doing. So the pharmaceutical industry loved him because he did certain policies that reduced competition in pharmaceuticals and thus drove up prices like uh, he you had to have like a license basically to make medical opiate products you know painkillers and all that sort of thing and anslinger always kept the number of those sorts of licenses very very limited which you know has this anti-competitive uh, restriction of supply effect economically drives the price up and so Pharmaceutical companies really appreciated that. You know, the, the alcohol and tobacco companies loved his his war on weed. And um, I'm sure probably the pharmaceutical companies did too. And so, you know, when you've got the Congress, the media, and the corporate world all on your side, the American people don't have a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, because they don't even know that that, say, for example, there are other points of view out there. Like there were scientists and doctors in the 30s, 40s and 50s who who did not agree with Anslinger's take on marijuana in particular. Uh, And there were serious, legit studies done during that time period on marijuana that said, no, uh, all the things the Narcotics Bureau is saying about how dangerous this is and whatever are actually not true. It's actually a pretty mild drug and does have some, you know, uh, medical possibilities and blah, blah, blah. But they were treated kind of the way the Richard Jewell movie is being treated, where it's just being, you know, marginalized and people aren't even aware of it. Well, and and back in those days, the availability of information was very limited. So it was a lot easier for the government to control the narrative. Yeah. I mean, at least we have alternative media sources now that people have access to thanks to the internet. Yeah. I mean, basically back then, you know, you had to worry about a handful of major radio companies. And then a little bit later on a handful of TV corporations. Um, And then, yeah, there were there were little small town independent newspapers, but most of the big newspapers that reached large amounts of people were um, controlled by a relative handful of corporations and and businessmen. And so, you know, if you could, you didn't have to cultivate that many that many um, uh, people to pretty monolithically control the narrative. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, there might be scientists and doctors who are publishing some studies in some some academic medical journals or whatever. But who who, who even hears about that in the general public, right? Right. And and another thing is, and this is this is still a problem today, constantly. Uh, is is that you know we have this system where our senators and congressmen are supposed to make all these laws and rules about all aspects of life virtually, and they're not knowledgeable in hardly any of it. Right. As most people are, right? Most people are only really knowledgeable in a handful of areas because there's just limitations of time and everything, right? And And so the idea that this handful of a few hundred people have the expertise to to make rules that will benefit, a giant nation of, of hundreds of millions of people in regards to the economy, in regards to each specific industry, in regards to, you know, media, in regards to information, in regards to infrastructure, in regards to any of the, you know, countless things we could come, come up with that the government legislates on. The, the odds that, that most of those people in the legislature are going to actually know what the hell they're doing in all, more than like two or three areas is ridiculous. And, and so... Part of my research, I was looking at some excerpts of transcripts of like Anslinger being questioned in Congress in regards to the Marijuana Tax Act and things like this. Because Congress, you know, they have these hearings and whatever. And what you realize almost immediately is like nobody in Congress had the slightest clue what marijuana even was, mm-hmm. let alone anything about how dangerous it was or was not or whatever. And so when you don't know a damn thing about a subject, it's very easy for you to be led by the nose by someone like Anslinger, who's got all these trappings of authority. You know, hey, I'm the Narcotics Bureau Commissioner. Right. I, I'm an expert and I know everything. And, and it's, you know, these, these congressmen who just heard of marijuana two days ago, um, who are like, you know, 80 year old guys who were born like right after the Civil War or something and have been in Congress for 20, 30 years, it's like, yeah, they don't know a damn thing about any of this stuff. Isn't that why he started using the term marijuana, calling it marijuana instead of referring to it as cannabis, which was kind of the common term for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was playing on the pre-existing racial prejudices from the Southwest, right? Where mm-hmm. it was one of the few places where marijuana kind of had a had a longer history and it was often associated with Mexicans and then all the negative stereotypes of Mexicans would then be kind of mapped onto the plant. And so, yeah, I, I think that's that's part of what was going on there. But he would also call it loco weed and killer weed, right? And collect all these outlandish stories that, you know, were either mostly untrue or wildly exaggerated or, or what have you. But, oh, and just, just on that idea of, of these people, you know, legislating on things they have no understanding of, just a few places that come to mind for me that, where you can see this on display recently is in regards to, like, the internet and government regulation of social media and all this crap. Yes. Like, you, you look at that stuff and you go, oh, yeah, 90% of these, these uh, congressmen don't know anything about anything when it comes to, to the internet and social media and how – or they have no clue no clue at all. Yeah, exactly. And listening to them ask questions of Mark Zuckerberg, realizing that they have no clue what they're talking about. And I'm sure he was like, would you just shut up? 
<laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there's also this like Dunning-Kruger effect thing where they're so woefully ignorant and yet they conduct themselves as if they're the experts and the person they're talking to is a complete ignoramus and a moron. Yes. And it's it's really gross when you understand what's going on that like these people are just – there's this um, very often this, this self-righteous streak in them and and this this condescending attitude and whatever. And when you realize like they're clueless, it's really, really – it's it's like funny and disgusting at the same time to to see these people and you see it in so many other areas too like when these these uh, people are you know advocating for new gun control laws or whatever and you realize like they don't even know which end of the gun goes bang yeah um when and they're like oh yeah we're gonna ban assault weapons and you know basically like just like, pick some random arbitrary accessories that constitute an assault weapon you know um these people like the, the, they're under the they're under the assumption that that machine guns are currently legal to buy over the counter without a background check i think <laughs> um and and again some of them are are just pure ignorant and some of them i think know better and are playing on the public's ignorance for these things whether it's the internet or drugs or guns or whatever it is and it's just this this defect of politics this defect of of states um, it's not the only defect, but it's a big one where it's like you have people making rules about things that they have no understanding of and they're relying on experts. But like anyone who who has deep knowledge about any field knows that once you really become knowledgeable, the experts don't all agree. Right. This is right. one of those things that people who've never studied history really deeply don't get. They're like. Well, why don't why doesn't everybody just agree on on the objective facts of what happened? And, you know, why isn't there just one version of history that never changes? It's like because as soon as you start really digging into it deeply and acquiring real real depth of knowledge, you realize there's a lot of things that are debatable. There's a lot of things that can't be known for sure or where where, um, you know, one's perspective colors the conclusions one comes to. And this is true uh, in science as well. And it's true in anything. So what ends up happening is you have these legislators le legislators who are not experts in something, and then they bring in some experts, some of which may be legit, some of which may not, but they don't know – they don't have the knowledge to differentiate between who's the real expert and who isn't. And then even amongst the real experts, they don't have the knowledge to differentiate uh, over – like if you have real experts giving competing versions of the truth, how do you know which one to side with? You don't. So you do it arbitrarily or you do it because, you know, basically you go with the one who tells you what you already want to hear. So, yeah. you know, Anslinger comes in and says, oh, yeah, we need to crack down harder because these blacks and Mexicans are smoking the weed and killing people with an X. Um, and if you're already someone who who thinks we need more law enforcement and particularly for, for black and brown people, then you're going to hear Anslinger say what you already want to hear and go, yes, that guy is the expert we should listen to. And and the other guy who's going to come in and say marijuana is not that big of a problem. Well, he's whatever, you know, he's he's a communist. He's not a legit scientist. He's what, you know, and, and not not look objectively at his credentials and, and what he's saying and whether it's true or not. And there was a doctor that came in to oppose Anslinger who was both a doctor and an attorney, right? Yeah, yeah, he was he he was working for or had worked for the American Medical Association. This is a guy with like real serious credentials and everything like that. Um, this was in the hearings leading up to the Marijuana Tax Act in the 30s, and he came in and basically opposed almost everything Anslinger was saying, and 
what happened was the committee very quickly, when it became clear what his point of view was, the committee very quickly just started attacking him mm. instead of instead of, you know, looking at the evidence and trying to to parse out, okay, who do we think is more accurate, this guy or Anslinger? Instead, they just immediately started attacking him, uh, questioning his credentials and his conclusions and, you know, in some ways almost like personally attacking him in, in nasty sorts of ways, so much so that this guy uh, didn't even want to testify when they did another hearing later on. He was like, why Am I even going to bother? They're not going to listen to anything I say, and they're just going to, you know, treat me like dirt. The difference, I think, between people who who lean more libertarian or anarchist and people who don't, is that that people who lean more libertarian or anarchist realize like that version of the political process is actually the norm, mm-hmm. and is is the commonplace standard operating procedure. And when it doesn't operate that way, when it actually operates in a somewhat reasonable fashion, that's that's the weird you know, rare fluke. Um, whereas a person who, who's more mainstream in their, their political thinking is someone who thinks, oh yeah, every now and then, you know, the legislative process or the political process gets, gets hijacked for, for some, you know, nefarious things. And they make laws based not on, on good evidence and, and logic and just based on special interests. Every now and then that happens, but that's, that's the exception, right? And the norm is the seventh grade civics version of how a bill becomes a law uh, that our, our enlightened public it's servants get together. Rock. Yeah, yeah. Our enlightened public servants get together and have uh, a rational discussion about what would be best for the public interest. And then they all vote their conscience on what they think is best for the most people. And that's how we get all the wonderful laws that we have. If only that were true. Yeah. The line between a, a cynic and a realist, I, I think, is mostly non-existent. I, I, I think a, a cynic, a cynic, just sort of sees things for what they are, uh, and and doesn't have the the rose-colored glasses or the blinders on to believe in the fairy tale version of of what things are. One of the crazy things to me is that you know, as much as our world has changed since the '30s when Anslinger got all this stuff passed. The federal government's approach to drug criminalization has not changed. You know, he was a big proponent of, you know, we're just going to criminalize it. We're going to upplay the dangers and downplay any of the potential benefits of this stuff. And the government is still playing by that same handbook 80 years later. Yeah, the, the paradigm hasn't changed. It's just gotten amped up, you know, every generation even more. And that was that was Anslinger's view on things, too, is like, well, the answer is just always more enforcement, stiffer penalties. You know, he he was the the originator of of mandatory minimums for for drug offenses, mm-hmm. uh, which I I think there had already been some of that going on in regards to alcohol during prohibition. So, you know, he didn't completely originate the idea of mandatory minimums, but he was the guy who who pushed it into to drug laws, and you know, he had worked in the prohibition bureau for a little while before he shifted over into narcotics at a very opportune time. And while he was working in, in alcohol prohibition before that was repealed, he at one point like drafted up a proposal for like how prohibition could be more effective. And basically it reads just like a proposal that he or other people would make later in regards to the war on drugs. He's like, well, we just need to have stiffer penalties and mandatory minimums, and we need to have more enforcers and more give them more resources and more power to investigate people. Uh, and we also should get the military involved. 
because um, you know, it's a lot of the, the, a lot of the booze is coming from outside the country. It's coming from Canada and the Bahamas and wherever. And mm -hmm. so, Hey, we need to get the U S Navy involved in the war on booze, blah, 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 blah. Now, you know, just a few years after he, he wrote up this proposal, prohibition went away, but I mean, it's basically the same blueprint, right? That later gets applied to the war on drugs where the answer is, is supply side in the sense of like, yeah, we'll just attack, you know, the sources that, the sources of the illicit substance and we'll just criminalize it. And when it doesn't work, well, the answer is just, we need, we need more, we need more, more enforcement. We need more enforcers. We need, you know, to throw more people behind bars. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these things that if you accept all of their premises, it's, it's an unfalsifiable idea. Um, it's sort of like the Keynesian idea that, all you need to fix a bad economy is more government spending. And then what happens if you do a bunch of government spending and the economy still sucks? Well, then the answer is we didn't do enough. You know? Yeah. Well, it's way worse than we thought. We need to throw more money at the problem. It's the same, the same approach to the, to the drug war, right? Which is like, oh, we spent a billion dollars and put a million people behind bars and by God, drugs are getting more prevalent. Well, let's double the amount of people behind bars and double our budget and see where that gets us. And if that doesn't work, we'll triple it. And it's similar to what the Pentagon does uh, mm -hmm. with, with the Cold War and then with the War on Terror, where it's just like, well, gee whiz, you know, a trillion dollars we thought would be enough. And Anslinger was very good at walking that, walking that fine line of saying, yes, our approach at the Narcotics Bureau is working, but the reason drugs are still a thing is not that our approach is wrong, but just that we need more. We need more laws, more power, more budget, more agents, whatever it is. And that's that's the same thing. You know, the Pentagon spends trillions of dollars and then some terrorist attack happens against Americans somewhere. And the answer isn't, well, our entire approach to things clearly isn't isn't working because we spent all this money and the and people aren't safe. The the answer is, well, gee whiz, we we need even more money and power because even with all we had, we couldn't keep you safe. So let's right. let's, you know. Um yeah, yeah, it, it's amazing how things just never change as far as that goes. But because it works, right? It's yeah. it's the same reason that, you know, there's there's certain tricks that people in charge just keep using. Um mm -hmm. and they keep using them because they work, right? The idea they of do. like pick a fight with another country to distract from problems at home. That's one of the oldest tricks in the book. Mm -hmm. Um divide and conquer, that's another one, right? Turn different groups of of the uh different groups of the ruled against each other so that the rulers can keep their position above all of them. You know, these, these sorts of things never go out of style because they just keep working. That's one of the things that I like about the move to get cannabis legalized is that it brings people from very diverse backgrounds. You've got people from the right and the left that come and work on this issue together. So that's, that's one of the things I kind of like about it. It's that it is kind of a unifying thing, and and maybe that's one of the reasons why they haven't legalized cannabis yet is because it does unify people. Yeah, I think, I think that um, that all the institutions of the the establishment, meaning the the government itself, the corporate mainstream media, and then the different um, uh, corporate interests, you know, that in this case that want to keep uh, marijuana illegal, that they they do seem to have almost like an instinctive aversion and hostility to any potential issue that might broadly unify large segments of the population that normally you know 
are encouraged to fight each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think another microcosm where you could see this is the movement back in 2008 of uh, opposing bailing out Wall Street. There were people from across the political spectrum who were like, you know, the most hardcore left-wingers and right-wingers coming together and saying, yeah, we don't agree on anything except we all agree, don't bail out Wall Street. I mean, polls polls show that some ridiculous, you know, 80% of the public was against the Wall Street bailout. Mm-hmm. And you can't get 80% of the public to agree on anything. Right. And And they made sure to pass the bailout anyway, and then also the media quickly, once the bailout was passed, they just kind of like shuffled it, shuffled the whole issue into the memory hole so that people... Uh, were led by the nose to sort of forget that last week they were pissed off about the bailout mm-hmm. um, and just distract people with other issues. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's a, there's almost like a general like, I don't know if it's quite subconscious, but a sense amongst the institutions of the establishment that that in general we want to be – we want to do what we can to create trouble – for any sort of like political movement that that is is pushing for a significant change that we don't like that is actually having broad appeal to groups who normally don't get along because yeah it it always benefits the folks in in charge i mean if you can get if you're the the rancher and you can get some of your cows to police the other cows um and and you can get the cows to think that like other cows are the source of their problems, not that the rancher is the source of their problem. Like mm-hmm. that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good um, uh, strategy if you can pull it off. Because then you don't even have to do as much to keep everybody in line. And plus, people are distracted. Well, and I think we we're seeing that with the because I think most Americans are tired of the forever wars and spending money in other countries. And while this country is suffering in in some ways and but i think we see that on both the right and the left and the corporate press and the government is trying to do everything they can to make sure that we stay in all these wars yeah and and one of the ways they do it is by rarely talking about these things in any meaningful way and so it's just not on most people's radar mm-hmm. um you know i think a lot of people are like yeah why are we still in afghanistan but but they're encouraged to not really think about it very often yeah, and you hear barely, I, I don't think I've heard anything. Of course, I don't watch a whole lot of normal news, but, you know, as far as like, you know, you would think these Afghanistan papers, this would be like front page, everybody would be talking about it. And really, most people that are not plugged into the same sources that we are don't have any clue what this is about. Yeah, um, everyone's been in recent weeks, it's all been about all the impeachment stuff. Mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting on a number of levels, because if that's all the media is covering and the Afghanistan papers are getting basically flushed down the memory hole, um, then it's it's impossible for the public to have a realistic debate on whether we want to continue the Afghanistan war. And, you know, the fact that that there are CIA and FBI fingerprints on a lot of the things related to the impeachment case. Yeah. Um, and the fact that they have a vested interest in, in not letting the public debate things like the war on terror. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, which, which could potentially unite the public. Again, some people way out on the right and way out on the left can actually, yeah. you know, principled good right wingers and left wingers oppose a lot of the war on terror stuff. Mm-hmm. But 
but if you can keep them instead butting heads with each other over, you know, whether they like Donald Trump or not. Exactly. Um, it's a wonderful divide and conquer strategy. So, yeah, I, I think there is I think there is a method to it. I do think there's a strategy um, to keep people talking about the wrong issues and to keep people um, to, to keep some of the cows ganged up against the other cows instead of um, maybe having the cows start to come together and look at the rancher and go, hey, maybe that, that guy, maybe that's the, the source of our problems, not each other. Well, CJ, I really appreciate your time this morning talking a little bit more about Anslinger and a bunch of other things. I am going to put a link in the show notes page to the episode that you did, but tell folks where they can find or follow you. Yeah, well, if you just type in dangerousHistoryPodcast.com, you'll you'll get to my homepage, and the podcast is the Dangerous History Podcast. It can be found wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, all the usual places. And, you know, you can follow Dangerous History Podcast on social media and all that good stuff. And I've, I cover a lot of different topics all over the place right now. Um like I mentioned before, doing a Woodrow Wilson series that's in huge super depth about basically just how horrible he is. And like with Harry Anslinger, the more I dig into him, the more I realize, oh, it's worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I really like. I, I kind of like your long format. You got to have a two or three hours to commit, but I like the long format because you do take such a deep dive. And like I said before, I really enjoyed the deep dive you did on the Civil War because you brought up some things that I'd never really heard of and kind of gave me a different perspective on both the North and the South as far as neither one of them, those sides were saints. Yeah, yeah, neither of them were, were really fighting primarily for what would have been the better reason for their for their side of things, for sure. Um, yeah, and that's what I like to do. Uh, I like I like to dig up the the little dark corners and things that that most people have no even someone who knows a bit about a topic just doesn't know about because it's just been left out of the the mainstream story that's the sort of thing i like to focus on y'all go check out the dangerous history podcast if you like history or even if you don't like history go check it out it's good stuff cj does tons of research well thanks a bunch cj i appreciate your time this morning all right well thank you very much thanks for having me on it's been great talking to you Show notes for today's episode can be found out at CannabisHillsby.com slash 98. We will be back here on Monday with episode 99, another healing story. And then on Thursday of next week, we will be back with episode 100. It's going to be epic. You guys need to make sure you tune in. Till we see you again, you guys have a great week. And thank you so much for listening. Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? Send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments.